Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Uh, welcome to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating. Today we'll be talking to Preeti Mishra, author of Language and the Making of Modern India, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to New Books in Language. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So we usually start our interviews by asking authors to tell us a little bit about how they came to be interested in the topic of their book. How did you get to be interested in the story of Odisha, uh, regional Indian languages and their connections to modern India? Um, This book started from a very personal place. Um, I grew up in Bombay, which is sort of the center in some ways of cosmopolitan India. And I felt both Indian and Odia because I'm from Odisha. Um, I felt it was okay for me to be both and it did. There seemed to be no kind of uh, friction between these two identities. Um, and I wondered how that was possible. And through my sort of undergraduate and MA degrees, I started sort of reading about kind of the relationship between regional nationalism and all India nationalism. And I realized that this relationship is not as seamless for other places. For instance, for Assam or in the South or Punjab, where there was a Khalistan movement. So the nation and the region didn't sit comfortably together in the history of modern India. And this made me start to kind of, they got me thinking about kind of how region as a category is formulated in Indian nationalist thought. And that's where the book began in some ways. And as I thought more about it, I realized that you can't talk about region in India without talking about language in India, because most of the early regions of India, early provinces of India are organized on linguistic lines. And that became the sort of conventional way of imagining territorial division in India through language. Um, And that is how I sort of came to this. It's both personal, trying to understand my own sense of the nation and the region, but also a broader kind of rumination on how India lives in its different languages. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So uh, your context then is the discipline of history, but you're also thinking about language in history. So this isn't, so, so when you think about the, the, the audience, given your, that sort of history that you told us, um, where would you situate the book? Just curious. So the book is meant to uh, speak to people who are interested in um, the politics of language in India, but also interested in the relationship of between language and nationalism in um, sort of from a global perspective. So how does language and nationalism, kind of how, how is that relationship working in different kinds of places across the world? So it's meant to um, sort of speak to historians of India, but also to people who are interested in the history of language in the world. Cool. cool. Yeah, very, very cool. So your focus in, in this book, let's get into that, is the first linguistically organized province in India, which is now called Odisha, but was previously known as Orissa. Um, so for, for listeners who don't know, can you tell us where it's located and what languages are spoken there? Great. Um, so Orissa is, and I still say Orissa, 
<laughs> I can't fine. say Odisha. It goes back and forth. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, so I probably will mispronounce my own home state mm-hmm. many times mm-hmm. now. Um, Odisha is um, situated in eastern India, in the eastern part of Peninsula India, just below Bengal. In fact, it used to be part of the British presidency of Bengal before it was um, formed as a separate state. Um, it, it has broadly two main halves, a coastal region, which is called Mughalbandi, because it used to be part of the Mughal Empire before the British Empire took over, and a hillier inland region, which is called the Garajat. This is the region which is rich in minerals, it's deeply forested, it's, part, it's set in the eastern Ghats, a mountain range, um, and does have the sort of the a fairly significant Adivasi population. Um, in terms of languages, the official language of Orissa now is Oriya, but it has a large number of Adivasi languages, about 21 Adivasi languages and 74 dialects. Um, out of those 21 languages, uh, Adivasi languages, seven of them actually have their own scripts. Part of southern Orissa also um, has people who are bilingual and speak Telugu as well as Oriya. So it is a very kind of mixed linguistic space. Mm-hmm. And we'll get back to this in what follows, but just briefly for folks who don't know, you're using the word Adivasi. Can you briefly say what that word means and what it refers to? Okay. Um, Adivasi, for those of us who don't know about India, um, the closest term that would seem familiar would be tribal. So part of the population of India that is identified as indigenous peoples. Um, These are communities that are not necessarily... Um, Hindu. They're not part of the Hindu religious group. They often have their own languages. They are quite carefully, uh, quite kind of discreetly placed. They are from particular parts of India. Um, they are, their religion is often animistic and their languages come from different root languages. So they're not Indo-European speaking peoples either. Um, in real terms, they are in contemporary India quite um how we want to put it, um, mm-hmm. quite oppressed. Yes. Uh, because yeah. they're not mm-hmm. um, sort of properly represented by um, those that are in power. And um, it, it, is, it, it is these communities now that are uh, quite um, intensely engaged in an oppositional relationship with the Indian state due to many, many years of oppression. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah, that's perfect. We'll, we'll get back to, to the Adivasi, but I wanted to just note the term for listeners who are not already familiar with, with the topic. Um, so, yeah, let's go, go on and talk about these, um, these languages. So in the book, you're concerned with languages that are characterized often as vernacular. And this is a concept whose history and application you explore throughout the book. Um, so can you tell us how you understand um, what the term vernacular means, what this concept is, and what roles do vernacular languages like Odia play um, in in your book and um, in what you're exploring? Yeah, um, sure. Um, so to start with, I wanted to clarify that when someone who's not um, engaged with Indian history thinks about vernacular, they just think about vernacular as the language of the place, right? Um, however, in the Indian context, this term is used in colonial India for some specific languages. Um, and these are the sort of major regional languages. Um, so why vernacular in vernacular is often referencing to, you know, local languages, 
in official documents, it's being opposed to uh, Persian or English or Sanskrit. So languages that have substantial speakers that the colonial state can't see. Those are the languages I'm talking about when I'm talking about vernacular. Um, the problem is this slippage precisely, the slippage between um, thinking about vernacular as a language of place and vernacular as a language that the state is recognizing and thinking about managing. Um, is that these these are two different ways in which language exists, right? Um, so what I wanted to do is to think about how when we apply this term vernacular to these major Indian languages, we come away with a sense that they are local languages, they're indigenous languages, they are in some ways powerless in relation to languages like English or Persian, depending on the context. The problem with this is that in some ways it is true. They are radical languages. They are languages of the people. They, these are the languages through which people can speak truth to power. So it, there is a sense of radical possibility in these languages. However, within the context of India, uh, what my book tries to show, especially in the first few chapters, is that these languages come to um, become quite in the regional zones where they are powerful, quite powerful languages, they um, become representative categories, they become the languages that are official languages that people can use for um, sort of judicial administration, or even um, education, etc. So these are not powerless languages. So what I wanted to do through the book is to think about how the vernacular sort of function on functions on both these um, registers, and especially the powerful register that some vernacular languages, counting on 15 to 20 now, um, are actually languages of power and languages of hegemony. They represent certain hegemonic groups. They empower certain hegemonic groups and disempower certain hegemonic groups. Um, and so what this book is trying to do is to look for the authority of the vernacular, where does that authority sit? How is that authority constructed? And how, through that story, we can see uh, the story of the making of the Indian nation, that this kind of authorizing of the vernacular in some ways is intrinsic to the story of the making of the Indian nation. Hmm. So, um, so no, please go ahead. Um, so one way of looking at the authority of the vernacular is to think about the way in which it is used to determine territorial um, divisions in India. So to, to determine the kind of um, the limits of um, regional territories. And um, this is only a, it is only possible to do this through what I call a sublimation of language, um, where suddenly, even though there are regional linguistic movements that emerge in the 18th, 19th century, they are um, they, and they are often exclusive movements. They are Tamil movements or Telugu movements or Odia movements. There is a way in which by the turn of the 20th century, um, these movements have started to talk about places, Tamil Nadu, Odisha, Andhra, and they've stopped talking about language because this place doesn't necessarily need to be an exclusive identity marker. It can be this inclusive space and it can allow for other parts of the nation to exist in them. So it becomes almost invisible in the making mm -hmm. of power in India. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So let's let's get into it. Let's um, let's talk about the the first chapter uh, where you open with this this story of Gopal Chandra Prahraj, who compiles 
the most extensive Odia lexicon in the uh, 20th century. And you look at his treatment of Odia, especially in comparison with Sanskrit, uh, Bengali, Tamil, and, and sort of other um, Indian uh, languages. So what kind of conclusions do you, do you draw from, from his treatment? Yeah. Um, so, Prahraj, I mean, could I just kind of tell sure. the story of a little please, bit? It's please, please do. Story. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he, he wrote these episodic, um, kind of a piece of episodic fiction, and he sort of took a lot from Oliver Wendell Holmes. So it's the same kind of uh, narrative. And this particular narrative is um, placed in the Bhagavad Ghara or the Bhagavad hut, which is this kind of communal space in Odia villages where the um, Odia Bhagavat is kept, uh, the Bhagavad Gita is kept, and people read it out communally and collectively. So it is a linguistic space, a religious space, a community space. And in that, he has these four important characters, a uh, English-educated schoolmaster, uh, a law clerk, uh, um, a Sanskrit priest, and what he's trying to do is to look at how they represent language. And he introduces all these characters in these very funny ways, where he says that uh, for the English-educated schoolmaster, he had this kind of um, deep hatred for the Odia language and that no thought could be expressed without a sprinkling of, um, of English words. And the Sanskrit te- sort of school teacher um, felt that Odia was somehow inadequate and had to sort of um, get as close to Sanskrit as possible mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. able to express the thoughts. And then the law clerk was so imbued in the language of law that even when he spoke to children, some legal language kind of slipped in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the idea there for Proraj was to say, is this language, he's making fun of all these different ways in which the Odia language is being used. And what he's trying to get at is that we don't want um, to be replaced by English. So we don't want to be like the English school teacher. We don't want Odia to get so close to Sanskrit that it somehow loses its identity as a separate language. So he's actually kind of lampooning this whole Sanskritization process that's happening to a lot of Indian languages. Um, And then he's sort of looking at how power works through this language of law discussion. Um, And what... We find in, in his history, in his treatment of the of Odia language, as well as in the kind of big debates about language that are happening in the 19th century, is the sense that there's a deep anxiety about what is Odia. Because in the 1860s, there's a um, move for by colonial officials to replace Odia with Bengali as the language of instruction and governance in the Odia Odisha division of the Bengal presidency. And this is where the kind of anxiety begins, and this it continues into the 20th century. Um, and so the, the whole sort of impetus of the debates for about 60 years is to argue that Uriya is a separate language. It's um, not the same as Bengali. So that the claim that it would be the same as Bengali would come from the idea that they're both Indo-European languages, they draw from Sanskrit and Prakrit, and they have these kind of deep links. Um, so the counter-argument that the Uriyas produce is that Uriya is not the same as Bengali because it is deeply um, kind of entangled in the Adivasi languages of Orissa. 
And so Odia becomes Odia, not just because of this high culture, Sanskritic, Indo-European status that it has, but also because of its day, everyday life usage, which is much, much more complex than um, the idea that it's just another Indo-European language would give us. So being Odia, speaking Odia, seems to be intrinsically uh, trying to sort of intrinsically connect Odia caste identity with Adivasi identity through this sort of entangling of the two languages. Um, and that's what the first chapter sort of tracks. It tracks these kind of 60 years long debates about this. Um, so what Prahraj concludes by the time he writes his lexicon is that we, when we think about language, we need to think about um, how it's used in the everyday world. But at the same time, he seems to be saying that Uriya has been a separate language for a very, very long time. Remember the anxiety. Um, because nothing has changed in it for many centuries. So there's both a kind of conservative insistence on a kind of core language that has survived, but also this kind of expansive radical insistence on everyday life of language and how misignation happens. So again, the two kind of the powerful and the powerless uh, vernacular sit together at the same time. And, and in a sense, those two claims are in tension with each other, right? The idea that yes. a language has this deep historical conservative core, which hasn't changed, and yet it's consistently used for everyday life, which is exactly. subject to flux. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Perfectly. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Great. So the, another thing that I found um, interesting in that chapter is that you explored how ideas from European thinkers like Locke, for instance, came mm-hmm. to influence these English colonial policies in India. Uh, in decisions about the languages of education, you mentioned with Bengali and of, of governance, and then eventually, of course, in carving up these um, geographical boundaries. And so um, these kinds, certain Lockean views and other views about language became influential in in the administration of India. Could you briefly, I know there's a lot here, but could you <laughs> briefly mention <laughs> uh, some of the ideas that were uh, influential and how, how the how these sort of abstract ideas came to hit the ground, how they impacted things. Yeah, I think one way of um, sort of approaching this is to think about um, in 1830s, they, um, the British colonial government changed the official language of the Bengal presidency from Persian to um, Bengali, Hindustani and Odia. And this decision is a very peculiar decision because these were not languages of power. These were not languages um, through which you could fill, you know, revenue papers, etc. So it's a peculiar decision. Why is this decision made? And when you look at the archive, there isn't a sense of, there's no need to explain this decision, which is uh, administratively quite expensive. But they've gone and asked a lot of um, kind of district level officials, what would the change involve? And a lot of them come back saying, are you insane? Let's not do this. This is too much work. I don't know, Odia. I know some Persian because I learned it in England. So this this kind of, that's one place to get into the question, why is this important? And there are two reasons. One, it's thought that good governance can only happen in a language that people understand. Right? And that is, I think that's the central point that one needs to think about. Where does that idea come from? I think that the idea comes from 1790s England, where there, these, these sorts of discussions themselves are happening around the John Bull law controversy, where people, um, sort of linguists, etc., are drawing on older ideas from Locke and trying to argue that we, if you want good liberal governance, 
then you need to use language that is accessible by people because a kind of official language obfuscates it cheats it lies to people so if you need if so using the language of the people becomes central to the politics of liberal governance so if india wants to bring if england wants to bring liberal guns to india it needs to do this no matter how expensive that shift is um and so i mean i can leave it at that but um just to sort of explain that this it is a very influential idea so the the romantic poets take up on it and so a lot of you know these confusing things if you grew up in india and you read people like courage and wordsworth and you wondered why they were talking about simple speech <laughs> that's what they were getting at um so and um very important linguistic figures in india for example william jones were involved in those debates so they were also bringing it in so a lot of jones's ideas about language in india uh, are drawn from that kind of political commitment that happens in 1790s england yeah great that's i think uh, as as you've suggested there's a lot there we could go in deeper but i think let's um let's shift gears a little bit to the second chapter where you um take a look at the construction of an odia literature in the 19th and 20th century um and so here again we're juxtaposing with bengali speakers yes. um in part in the construction here and uh, you focus on a particular case of upendra bhanja um whose work is pre-colonial and comes under criticism in the late 19th century so maybe you can talk about these two things and the construction of the literature who was excluded and who was included and why and and i think talking about that particular case would be helpful in getting clear to our listeners that construction yeah so um once sort of the the debate between whether they should use odia or bengali in school textbooks and in governance which was happening in the 19th century uh, once that was resolved with this acceptance that no we will use odia because it is the language of the people again um they had to come up with textbooks in odia that could be taught and one way of resolving that was there were two ways to resolve that either one you write new literature which happened or you um publish older odia literature for school kids to read upendra bhanja was one of the most popular well regarded poets of the pre colonial period um and people sort of you know just rattled off his poetry um before but he was from a very kind of rasa literature tradition he was very um his his poetry was extremely sexual um to the point where you know the anatomy of women were de- sort of described in great detail um and this for this was very difficult for a kind of 19th century odia bengali british elite because remember there's there's a lot of kind of victorian um discomfort with sexual content that's happening at this time so um the the case of upendra bhanja becomes a, a sort of conflagration where um the odia elite get divided into two camps and one camp says we will not um sort of stop and sort of reading this kind of literature our kids should learn this etc and then the other camp um which said you know this is unacceptable and it became a very fairly complex debate that sort of moved away from school textbooks and started thinking about what is good literature and what is literature that is appropriate for modern orissa an orissa that has not even been formed yet so what kind of literature should exist so that we can produce um 
sort of a new generation of Odia speakers. So the question of modernity, the question of the function of literature, what does literature do? These became the big questions that this kind of debate um, picked up on. The debate is eventually resolved by uh, some really influential literary figures, one of them, um, Vishwanath Kora, who becomes the editor of Utkal Sahitya, which becomes a fairly important uh, literary journal, who argues for um, sort of a kind of almost a balance between these two ideas and saying we have to keep our traditions, but we also need to think about how to build anew. And to understand his writing, I try to build on Melindva Kanker's idea of uh, inaugural moment in literary criticism. So instead of thinking about tradition and modernity as a question of impasse where they can't work together, um, what uh, Vakankar argues is that we, if we think about the inaugural, then the past is as important as the kind of future. Um, and what Vishwanath Kaur does with this discussion is that he sort of almost elides the debate and says, what is our function? I'm going to set up this new literary journal. What is our function? What are we supposed to do? And he builds this, econ- this sort of a triangular relationship between the reader, the writer and the critic. And the critic becomes a representative, almost like a kind of MP in a parliament sort of thing. And he is his job is to police it in such a way that the reader gets the right kind of literature. But the writer is also a very important figure in this, that you are writing to build new research. So it becomes almost an economy where um, it is a very kind of liberal representational economy, where he's trying to build an idea of an Odia literary public that is responsible collectively to produce a new Uriya literary world. Hmm. And so I guess one other thing... Oh, maybe I didn't to answer be... your question, though. That's, no, 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 that's okay. <laughs> uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot going on here. I mean, so the another thing I think to pick up on here is the, um, the construction of this literature in juxtaposition with Bengali speakers. Yes. I think that was another aspect... Yes. Um, so Bengali becomes this really kind of, there's a love-hate relationship with the Bengali amongst these figures during this time, partly mm-hmm. because there's this threat of Bengali, right, where Bengali can take over Orissa. But at the same time, there is a desire for what Bengali has. So Bengali as a language becomes the, the, the only sort of Indian language that seems to have done well by colonialism. Um, it has built for itself a body of readers um, that are very responsible towards the language, a body of criticism and texts. So it seems to have the whole infrastructure of modern literary life set up in a way that is deeply aspirational for um, languages like Odia or Telugu, etc. So Bengali becomes this thing that they're constantly aspiring to. Right. And so, so there's a both the aspiration to be like it, but then a, a simultaneous distancing from yeah. it because they they don't want to be usurped by by Bengali. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Great. Great. Well, so um, let's then continue on. And in the third chapter, you pick up on something that you just mentioned, which is this uh, Utkal Similani. Mm-hmm. or the Utkal Union Conference, uh, I guess would be a translation, as you put yeah. it in the, the book. Um, so you mentioned them. Uh, again, who are they? How does their early political concerns intersect with the Odia language? So um, in, in your answer, there I think there are a few key terms and concepts that you, we need to unpack here. Mm-hmm. So 
Praja, Raja, and Rajaniti um, are, are three of them. So maybe we can just start out with who are these folks? Why are they so important? Okay. Um, they are the first sort of properly organized Uriya public association that is trying, they, they set up in 1903 um, and they are set up as a kind of association of Uriya elite who come together to um, kind of lobby for Uriya interests, Uriya speaking people's interests. Now, why is this important? This is important because the Uriya speaking areas, because there is no Odisha as such at this point, the Uriya speaking areas are scattered between different British presidencies. So uh, a big chunk, which is called the Orissa Division, is part of the Bengal Presidency. There is um, Northwestern Orissa. There's um, many districts that are part of the central provinces. And um, the province of um, the, the sort of district of Ganjam, which is um, quite big, um, is part of the Madras Presidency. So they're absolutely scattered. And in all of these presidencies, they are minorities and they do not get any representative voice um, in, in relation to the sort of central governments. There are huge costs to this. So um, in 1866, there's the um, massive Orissa famine and the Famine Commission report writes that um, one of the problems is that it is so far from the center. The Orissa division was so far from the center of the Bengal presidency that help could not reach. And um, there were a lot of problems that this kind of brokenness um, provided. So in some ways, um, what this elite group was trying to do is say that we will become the voice that will represent the needs of all these scattered Odia-speaking areas. Um, this association was um, almost entirely um, very, very elite. It was it was very much like the early Indian National Congress. So it had you know um, well-to-do, educated men, some women. Quite a lot of the princely state rulers. Orissa has more than twenty, had more than twenty princely states, um, and all their rulers, many of their rulers, were part of the Utkal Union Conference, um, and so they sort of were sort of insistent that their intention was to address the social and the economic needs of the Odia people. That is what they wanted to address. They were unwilling to talk about other issues. And one of the main issues that they were unwilling to talk about was politics. They said, we are not a political association. They did not want to be part of this political association, uh, this political idea. They felt that, um, as one of the sort of founding members um, argued, that we are in no position, we are too young as a community um, to do politics. It's a very liberal idea that, you know, you just haven't reached adulthood. Um, and in these discussions, something really interesting emerges about the idea of the political. What is this thing that they're avoiding? What is politics? Um, for them, politics was opposition to the colonial state. It was as simple as that. Or any critique of the colonial state. This was a sort of determinedly loyalist association. It didn't want to take on the colonial state. But for them to say, we don't want to do politics, they had to explain politics. They had to explain Rajaniti as the, the term that they were using um, as politics. What is this thing? What are we avoiding? So in doing that, they started sort of building, sort of filling ideas such as subject, ruler, um, politics with meaning. And in some ways, to me, this is this is the kind of 
um, precursor to actual political activism, to understand what the position of the subject is. So they use the term praja as uh, subject and raja as ruler and rajaniti as politics. But by translating into those things, they also brought in Indian understandings um, of these terms. Praja literally means progeny. It means the child of. This is not a kind of powerful subject position, right? We've all been children. We were never powerful when we were children. Um, And Raja means very clearly Raja belongs to a very monarchical system. It is not a liberal political system, right? And it it, it brings with it ideas of divine right of kings, etc. And then Rajaniti, if you translate politics as Rajaniti, then it becomes a job of the Raja, the Niti of the Raja, right? So what they were saying is that it is not your place to engage in Rajaniti. We are Praja. It is not our place to engage with Rajaniti. But even as they were saying this, they ended up in a position where they brought in ideas of politics, liberal politics, um, because they were faced with ideas of Prajatantra, for instance. What is Prajatantra? Prajatantra is how we define democracy in India. Um, and that's, again, a term that comes from that linguistic world. Um, so it, it kind of it was a very gradual process. And it's not a process that just happened in Orissa. It was happening in across India. So Tilak gave many, many speeches where he was trying to explain to people why they need to be political, that you're not just Praja, you are political subjects. And he was using these terms as Rajaniti, Raja and Praja and was arguing that the British are bad Rajas. Um, and that's why Praja need to take over. Right. And just um, just to make clear here, these terms, since we're talking about language, um, where they're coming from, um, mm-hmm. just to, because, uh, you know, you, you might hear them and think, oh, well, Rajas, that's a that's a Sanskrit term. Raja mm-hmm. Niti is, is Sanskrit. But these are terms from Odia, correct, that they're talking about. Yeah. And then they're drawing on some Sanskrit etymology. Can you say a little bit about the, the language itself here? Yeah. Um, so. The language, I mean, obviously, these are kind of Uriya terms as much as they're Sanskrit terms. And they, they are bringing with it Uriya traditions of rulership and power and state power. So they're bringing with it ideas of how kind of political power was divided amongst people in Orissa. So there are these arguments that um, historians have been making about how rulership and sovereignty in Orissa was always a scattered concept. It wasn't in the body of the king, so to speak. Um, It often was shared with the religious elite. It was shared with um, kind of local chieftains and was shared with Adivasi chieftains in certain parts of Orissa where the princely state ruler drew his legitimacy from the acceptance of the Adivasi chief who would say, yes, you can be the king. So sovereignty was much, much more fragmented than we think of it um, as being. And then to top that, there was also kind of a rising new understanding of sovereignty from the colonial period where these sort of 20 or more, 24 uh, um, princely states, their understanding of rulership and sovereignty had already been negotiated in the 19th century between the colonial state and these princely states. And their understanding of sovereignty, again, was something which was a bit more complex than this kind of black and white kingship is is this mm-hmm. single so- sovereign space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So good. So 
what we see as a as a changing so sort of going back to the theme you mentioned earlier about the historical roots intention with the um, everyday use that we have these the uh, these terms being filled with new sort of modernist understandings at the same time as being grounded in these these earlier sort of sanskritic um, understandings sort of mediated by how it's how it's unfolding in the the region itself yeah okay all right, so so that's the third chapter, um, and so one of the things that's going on in this in this time period is that we have the Swadeshi movement coming coming into existence and rising up in the early twentieth century. Uh, so early on, as you said, um, the Utkal Samilani are are saying people aren't ready necessarily for political uh, movements, but this movement begins to um, to sort of uh, build. How do how do they respond as this movement um, builds? What kind of tensions um, within the society and sort of with the broader political world are are coming about? Yeah. Um, well, I think this this is a very kind of fraught period for regional movements in relation to Indian nationalism. So within the uh, movement, there is a way in which the early 20th century, so from sort of 1903 to the Swadeshi movement in 1908, and then up to 1920 when non-cooperation movement happens, is a fairly difficult time in the history of Orissa. There are a number, a couple of really big famines. And it is very, very hard not to critique the colonial state when famines are happening, uh, particularly because Indian famines under the colonial rule weren't necessarily natural phenomena. Um, so the, the this kind of position of holding politics at bay gets pushed to its limits at this point. And out of this emerges a new kind of generation of Odia um, leaders who feel really uncomfortable with this disavowal of politics. So there seem to be in 1908 during the Swadeshi movement, there are these kind of elisions and different ways in which they're trying to do politics despite um, the clear sort of notion of not doing it. But by we, the time we get to 1920 with the non-cooperation movement, the Utkal Zamani has to sort of, as a movement, as an association, um, capitulates to this question of politics and says, we are a political association in 1920. And part of this is not just about, this is the internal tensions you're talking about, but the, there are external tensions. So in 1908 up to 1920, there is a sense that the All India National Movement does not represent regional politics. Um, and this is not just a sense The sort of the Indian National Congress very clearly says up to, nine, up to the beginning of the 20th century that they're not a social organization. They're uninterested in these questions. They're interested in these questions, but there are other spaces because they're worried that the moment you raise questions of language, about religion, about caste, the association itself would kind of crumble because of the sort of intense differences. Um, and that's the position it holds for a very, very long time. But it's only in the kind of 1910s that there is this sense that this is not a position we can hold, especially in relation to linguistic nationalism. And out of this comes this generation of Indian nationalists at the central level who start saying, one, that we have to acknowledge linguistic diversity and we have to give it space within the making an idea of the Indian nation. Second, that we as a national organization cannot survive unless we speak to people in their own languages. We are just an elite organization. If we want to be a people's movement, 
we need to speak to people in their language. So it's both an acceptance of kind of the linguistic idea, but also a kind of very um, practical question of how do we speak to people? How do we spread our political idea? Um, out of this comes the acknowledgement by the Indian National Congress of regional uh, sort of of kind of a linguistic division of India. So by 1919-1920, there is a decision to um, set up provincial Congress committees on linguistic lines. So the idea of India is formed in that moment of sort of linguistically divided India um, at that point. So um, the Andhra movement, for example, gets its own separate provincial Congress committee. The Utkal Union Conference is happy to become political because there is a Utkal Provincial Congress Committee, even though Orissa doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, maybe just one more thing in this chapter to to uh, to pick up on um, is so we're talking about language here, but there's also, and I guess it's not developed a whole lot in the the chapter, but I'm just wanted to to pick on it because you mentioned it. Um, there's also the question of religion in the background here too, right? Because there's Hindu-Muslim tensions in this nationalist context as well. Does does that and how does it tie into these questions of language? It um it there's a sort of intrinsic connection there because um, it becomes um, the the official lang- line of the International Congress in relation to religious difference in India seems to always carry this undertone of linguistic identity. So it starts in um, 1905 to 1908 with the Swadeshi movement, where Bengal is partitioned into East and West Bengal and on religious lines, where um, East Bengal is being Muslim and West Bengal is Hindu. And a lot of the um, important Congress leaders respond by saying the critique of it, the sort of recurring critique, is that you have divided Bengali-speaking Muslim brothers from their Bengali-speaking Hindu brothers. And the argument there is fundamentally that linguistic identity is almost a kind of um, visceral, bodily identity that um, sits at the foundation of our society and religious identity is just uh, cosmetic in some ways. So it, it is that is what is important. Um, and this is, this is an argument that is rehearsed over and over right up to the partition, where if you look at the Gandhi-Jinnah conversations, Gandhi is trying to say to Jinnah, actually, we have more in common than we have differences because of our linguistic similarities. Um, so the language seems to be doing a very important job here because what you will notice is by 1920, they've not um, addressed caste in any serious way. They've not addressed religion in any serious way, but they have addressed language in any some serious way because language becomes the only category of difference that seems to be um, acceptable to recognize. And it's easy for them then not to talk about religion and caste, etc., because people have this in common and this right. cannot be denied. Right. Well, let's. Um, religion plays a, a maybe larger, explicit role in chapter four, where you talk about uh, so-called natural Orissa, which is the the proposed province that that now there's this proposal for a province, and it is in many ways understood in religious terms, but not as as you're hinting at here, exclusivistic Hindu terms. So, um, yes. 
we can unpack that a little bit. So let's maybe if you could just talk a bit about where does this religious idea of Orissa at this point come from and how does it contrast to this idea of a sort of artificial, quote unquote, colonial Orissa? Um, maybe it's easier to go the other way and talk sure. about artificial. So artificial colonial Orissa is basically that, that this idea that Orissa doesn't exist in its real form, obviously, because it's not formed as a province. It's scattered in all these different places. So um, this is not its natural form, um, this scattered presence in different provinces. So that's why it's artificial. It's colonial. It's just not in its true form. Natural Orissa is something different. Natural Orissa seems to um, defy colonial rule and time, etc. It, it is something um, that is intrinsic to uh, the Indian landscape. Um, this idea of natural Orissa is um, kind of expounded upon by the by not just the kind of Odia leaders, but also by colonial officials. So if you think about how colonial officials are describing the Oriya parts, there seems to be some sort of commonality in that description. Um, I, in this chapter, look at this guy called W.W. Hunter, um, who wrote quite a number of important texts, um, including the statistical survey of um, the Bengal presidency, uh, introduction to um, Muslims of India, as he called it. And he wrote this two-volume, The History of Odisha, and in that, um, it's a quite a big book, but what he tries to do is say that I am going to give you a template on how to describe a region. I'm going to do this with Orissa. And effectively, he says two things about Orissa. One, that it is a kind of wild place where no human endeavor has happened, um, but at the same time seems to also have some very modern people. So it's a juxtaposition of the old and the new at all times. Um, and he uses the words like museum of people, etc. Um, second, that it is a deeply religious space. Right. So one of the defining principles of what makes Orissa Orissa is that it is religious. The people are religious. The land is religious. This idea is not just Hunter. Um, Mughal era historians who come to Orissa also describe it as the land of gods. Um, so there is this kind of sense that this is a very, very religious place. The idea that it's religious comes from um, the presence of Puri, which is one of the four main places of pilgrimage for Hindu India in coastal Orissa. Um, the main deity is Jagannath, who is uh, supposed to be an incarnation of Krishna, um, uh, Vishnu, and it's a sort of version of religion. Um, and this presence of Puri makes it a really important part of kind of the Hindu imaginary of India. And that's why it's a religious land, so to speak. Um, this idea that it's a religious land then gets taken up by um, Oriya leaders who um, sort of describe how it's a religious land through the legend of Jagannath, saying that it is a land where um, it's a pure land. It is accepting of all kinds of difference. Caste doesn't matter. Religion doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter, etc., etc. Um, so, and this idea of um, kind of Hindu Orissa gets defined in these terms, but it's not Hindu Orissa. It's um, it's almost like a it's a kind of Hinduism which is different from all other Hinduism. And it part of this is something that we can see with more clarity when we look at how Gandhi describes Puri um, 
where he's not describing Puri per se, he's talking about South Africa, but he says that South Africa is like a Puri for Indians, that when they cross the seas and get to South Africa, they've arrived at a place where they're all the same. They're just Indian. So it's almost a national divine space that the act of pilgrimage to Puri gets rid of all differences and makes you part of this one single community. So this is how natural Orissa is defined. It's a place which is both Hindu, obviously because Puri and Jagannath, but at the same time an inclusive, expansive, humanistic Hinduism, um, which can sort of draw in all other communities and hence is a kind of microcosm of what India needs to be. Yeah. And so um, in this this chapter, you conclude, just kind of want to touch on this uh, briefly with a couple of uh, questions about what, what kind of happens to this inclusive promise. Uh, and I just wanted to kind of touch on this real, real briefly, um, because the idea here is that this is supposed to be um, just almost like a sacred space, regardless of, as you're saying, uh, religion, uh, maybe gender, caste, and so on. Um, you reflect a little bit on that at the end of the um, the chapter. Could you say a little bit about what what your reflections are there? Um, whether it's lived up to its promise, what, what kind of tensions have have come about here? Um, so, in some ways, I end that chapter with this question of you know what is what is the uh, what is the future of this cosmopolitan Orissa, this accepting equal Orissa, um, and some of the questions are answered actually at the postscript of the book, right at the end, where um, I, I sort of talk about what happens to, especially the Adivasis. In some ways, this entire argument, and we can talk about this um, going forward, is it, standing on the shoulders of the Adivasis, right? It's their their role in Oriya language that makes it a special place, their relationship with the Jagannath cult that makes it a special kind of religion. Um, what is the what is the kind of future of the Adivasi peoples of Orissa? Um, are they beneficiaries of this inclusive cosmopolitanism? And in some ways, what the last 60 years have shown us is that actually they're categorically not beneficiaries of this. In some ways, this whole process allows Orissa to speak for the Adivasis without including them. So there's a both, there's a almost parallel inclusion and exclusion that, sorry, a parallel inclusion and exclusion that is happening here. Um, that we need to kind of be aware of when we think about these kind of linguistic movements and um, as positive movements of becoming, that they are always operations of power and somebody is losing out in that equation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. So that's, I I wanted to pick up on that because I think that brings that reflection at the end of this, that chapter brings us into the, the, um, the next bit, this explicit reflection on um, the Adivasi, right? That, that we you set up nicely in thinking about the this ideal of the kind of cosmopolitan space in the previous chapter. So at this point in the book, um, we're thinking about the the what is now Odisha, um, which has become a separate province. And so the Adivasis, as you introduced earlier in our interview, are non-Odia speaking inhabitants, but they make up twenty five percent of the population. And so there's this need to somehow understand them in relationship to this province, which, as you've just described, is now understood in, in some sort of a, a, a natural narrative. It's um, uh, the, the linguistic story has been grounded in history. We have this sort of natural religion and, and, and so on, um, uh, or, or let me 
natural ERISA in, in religious terms, let me put it that way. So what strategies do local historians, once ERISA becomes Odisha, how do they interpret their past, the Itihasa, mm-hmm. uh, in relationship to the Adivasi? In some ways, um, Itihasa, the, the, the history becomes the most important strategy um, to understand the relationship between this community and the caste Odias. Um, as, as you've mentioned, they are 25% of the population. This question becomes a fairly important question when it comes to the relationship between the new possible new province and the Madras presidency, because there's a huge tract of land which the Telugus can lay claim to as much as the Odias can lay claim to. And for the Odia claim to function, which it does and is successful, um, they have to argue that the Adivasis have more in common with the Odia-speaking people than they do with the Telugu-speaking people. Um, and it is in this battleground that we see how the Adivasis are incorporated into the Odia community. And to do so, they again go back to Jagannath and Puri. So um, the Jagannath cult, uh, it's a kind of version of cult, um, it one of its more unusual features is its um, is the fact that it is actually not a very clearly um, Vedic, pure Hindu cult. It seems to have very clear Adivasi elements in it, um, down to the way the deity is pictured uh, and built, but also the originary myth of the Jagannath cult. That this it's this kind of um, where does the god Jagannath come from? And the myth goes that um, Jagannath was actually a tribal deity, a secret tribal deity, and a Brahmin prince went out looking for him and um, ended up with the tribals. And through a kind of men, much very complex process in which the prince literally just ends up stealing the deity, um, the, the Adivasis become part of this cult because it is originally their god. Um, And this story helps explain the presence of Adivasis within the rituals of the Jagannath temple, where certain Adivasi communities, like the Sabaro community especially, are in charge of sort of um, the food in the temple, etc., um, and which is unusual. It is extremely unusual in, in amongst Hindu temples. And the argument is that um, the, the, this is a deity not just of Hindus, but of also the Adivasis. And that this, um, and in some ways what I say in the, in the chapter is that there is this kind of slate of hand that happens at this point where the Sabaras, one Adivasi community, stands in for all the Adivasi communities of Orissa. So again, it's all the entire 25% that kind of get incorporated into, into this kind of Hindu Jagannath cult. Now, we know historically that this is not how it is experienced. Um, there's the Mohima Dharma cult, which um, literally broke into the Adivasi, uh, broke into, sorry, the Jagannath temple and desecrated the temple as an act of dissent in the 19th century. So we know that this is not how it's experienced. Um, but there are traditions of sovereignty that I've mentioned before that very clearly link power and the Adivasi. Um, chieftains. Um, so all of this leads to the story of the Jagannath cult being an inclusive cult, and through this, a narrative of how Odias and the Adivasis are part of the same community, have lived their lives adjacently 
the language is side by side, as I call it, and it keeps coming back. And a lot of this is done through new histories of Orissa that are written in the 1930s onwards, where um, not only are the stories of this kind of Adivasi cult of uh, Jagannath being talked about, but also very careful kind of linguistic analysis is being done where Adivasi linguistic terms are being tracked into the Oriya language and a certain kind of common history is being proved. So what this effectively does, this whole kind of strategy of inclusion does, is that it never undermines the difference between the caste Adi, uh, in the sorry, it never undermines the difference between the caste Oriya Hindu community and the Adivasi community. But it does argue that they have always lived by it side by side. They have a lot in common and they are part of this community. So it doesn't undermine any kind of social hierarchies that exist. Mm-hmm. So let's, we'll, we'll return to that one more time. I'm, I'm going to ask you about your, your postscript. But before we get there, um, the conclusion of the book, you look at how some leaders of the Indian nationalist movement talked about multiculturalism. And we've hinted at this a little bit already. Uh, but let's, let's take them in, in terms. So the one, the major figures that you look at are Gandhi, Nehru, and Ambedkar. So maybe let's start with Gandhi. Um, you characterize his view as one which allows both the vernacular and the vehicular to rule at the same time. So what, is, what does that mean? Gandhi, I think, is the most different from the rest of the um, political figures who talk about um, language in the sense that he, he, is, he tries to argue that there is no contradiction between having an affection for your mother tongue, for mm-hmm. him it's Gujarati, Right. Um, with having the ability to use and thrive in other languages. For him, mm-hmm. it's Hindustani, this imagined mm-hmm. language which is going to pull from, pull words and idioms from all the Indian languages. Right? That so would that be the vehicular. Sorry? Yeah. Oh, sorry, that would be the vehicular. Is that, that is the vehicular. Right. So the vernacular yeah. is your mother tongue. The vehicular is this new imagined radical Indian language. Um, and he, what he's constantly trying to argue is that there is no contradiction between those two things. Um, and what he does is that he argues for what he calls a palimpsest of, at, well, he doesn't I do, a palimpsest of affect, where he says that your love for your mother, and in by extension your mother tongue, is the foundation of your love for anything else, or anyone else, or any other language. So by loving and espousing another language, the vehicular language, which would be Hindustani, you are not in any way um, undermining your love for your mother tongue. So Indians can be fundamentally bilingual. Um, and they can even be multilingual. So he makes these arguments about, you know, I love Punjabi as much as I love Gujarati. But it is my love for Gujarati which is inalienable and allows me to love anything else. Mm-hmm. So this is a kind of easy solution in some ways to Indian mm-hmm. multilingualism. Mm-hmm. So that's so that's Gandhi, but then uh, Nehru. You look at his views, and you say that um, that he simplifies and kind of domesticates linguistic difference, uh, and that he is committed to regional languages. But he also thought, like like Gandhi, that Hindustani could be a national vehicular language. So, how does Nehru understand this relationship between linguistic diversity and a supposed nat- national language? Um, so Nehru, I mean, what we need to note about Nehru himself is that he doesn't have a lot of emotional connections with Hindi or other languages. Um, And he 
is quite, I mean, if, if you recognize his position, he, he's in the 50s and 60s, 40s, 50s and 60s, even 30s, um, trying to sort of deal with a multi-layered problems that the new Indian nation is facing. And in many places, Nehru actually argues that, you know, can we stop talking about language? Can language not be the problem? <laughs> because he, he's just exhausted by it. And one way of dealing with that is to simplify and domesticate linguistic difference by saying, yes, we have these languages, these 15 languages, listing them and then moving on. So recognition of local languages, patience or at least, you know, toleration of linguistic movements that keep going till the 1960s, 70s, and an argument for a functional vehicular language. Now, the difference between Gandhi and Nehru is that he's functional vehicular language is actually basic Hindi, which is modeled on basic English, which is about um, reaching, sort of drawing a language down to the lowest common denominator, stripping it of idiom or anything that makes it difficult for someone to understand when they've traveled 200, 300 miles from home um, and making it this really kind of core basic language. And that is not the Hindustani that Gandhi is imagining at all. His Hindustani is actually immensely richer than this basic Hindi. Um, so for, for Nehru, it's about simplifying. Right, right. And then then finally, you look at Ambedkar, who he is concerned, of course, famously with uh, Dalits, mm-hmm. but he doesn't discuss the Adivasi community when he's thinking about these linguistic states. So um, why do you think that was, and what do you think it shows us about the relationship between Adivasis and, and linguistic states? Yeah, I think... The, the, the thing with Ambedkar is that um, in his discussions of the linguistic states, he, he seems to be worried about the concept of the minority. Uh, but the minority here are the Dalits, uh, not the Adivasis at all, um, because he sees them as people who are um, scattered in, in, in public spaces, in, in urban as well as rural places, right? That's the Dalit life. In some ways, they are a minority in every colony, every space that you can find in India. The Adivasis are categorically a different group. They are fundamentally landed, right? So um, historically, in terms of administration, Adivasis have been put in, and I use this term not because it applies properly, but it's familiar, put in ghettos, but their own ghettos. Like they, they are in their own reservations. Again, this is a term that does not apply properly to Adivasis. Their own areas. Right. They're indigenous to a certain forested area, and that's where they are. And the colonial state makes sure that they are protected within those areas. So the colonial state sets up agency traps to do that, to exclude the functioning of normal liberal law in those areas. So they've always been these kind of small pockets in which they live. They don't look like minorities. The Korapur district or even Ganjam, especially Korapur district, is not a minority Adivasi population, right? It's almost 70% Adivasi. So if we think about Adivasis as minority, yes, nationally we can, but in particular spaces they are not. And that makes it very hard for someone who's talking in terms of minorities to address the question of Adivasis. And this is why I ended that chapter with someone who is committed to the Adivasi cause rather than the minority cause. And that is Jaipal Singh, who represents the movement for Jharkhand, which eventually is formed in 2000. Um, And he argues for Adivasi rights in terms that seem very prescient to us now, 
where he's talking about displacement, he's talking about, you are all talking about these Adivasis as though they're just numbers. They are not numbers, they're people. Because what Jaipal Singh's critique shows us is that in the formation of linguistically defined India in the 50s and 60s, all these Adivasi areas, not just the Uriya Adivasi areas, are just being bartered between different provinces. So there are areas that are being fought between Maharashtra and Karnataka or between Bengal and Assam. And the arguments are very similar to the kinds of arguments that the Uriyas were making about adjacency, about common history, about familiarity. So there is a way in which Adivasi India has been kind of divided into these provinces by making them invisible. And that's what I try to argue, that they have become the invisible minority. Because when you look at the map of India, you cannot see them till 2000 when Arkhand is formed. Yeah. And and uh, Singh has that nice nice quote that you included about the the quote-unquote bluff of, of past history where he's pointing out, pointing yeah. to these historical narratives that we've been talking about throughout our interview that he, he doesn't think that they're going to work uh, yes. or that they shouldn't work rather to justify these decisions. Exactly. Yeah, nice. So so let's conclude then with your postscript. You mentioned um, that some of the questions that we raised earlier were were answered there. And I think maybe the main question that you put to yourself and I guess to the readers of this book is whether it was in the best interests of the Arivasis to be absorbed into the Odia community. Uh, what what do you think about that question? How would you answer it? Um, it's the only way to answer it is that no, it wasn't. Um, because if we look at the experience of Adivasis right from 1950, so the moment the India India becomes independent, um, Adivasis over Rissa start getting displaced. So big dams are built on their lands, and they have to be displaced, or big factories are being built. Um, so um, the Hirakud Dam, which is one of the largest dams in Asia of its time was built in Adivasi Orissa. Um, and and sort of millions of people were, um, sorry, not millions, um, thousands of people were displaced. Um, the uh, Raukila steel plant is established very close to the Herakar Dam. And that again leads to other displacements. And these displacements keep occurring. And the history of these displacements is quite um, sort of alarming. Um, you also have uh, mining projects because much of the areas that were that are Adivasi Orissa are part of the sort of most mineral rich areas of uh, India. So mining becomes another devastating act that newly liberalizing India uh, perpetrates on these uh, communities. So increasingly, these communities have been displaced from their lands. Um, put in positions where they've become migrant laborers and their communities, their ways of life are becoming increasingly kind of dissipated into the Indian masses. Um, and what is interesting is that all of this is um, seems to sort of not jar any notion of what is what it is to be Uriya and what it is to be Adivasi, that the distance between the Uriya and the Adivasi, despite the 1930s claims about adjacency, is sustained precisely because of the 1930s claims about adjacency, um, that they're still the other, they're still people who um, needed to be spoken for, they are still the primitive um, and embarrassing, etc., um, which is very different from the kind of um, idea of Adivasi brotherhood that the 1920s and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. talking about. Yeah. 
Well, it's a that's a sobering note to end on, but I think it it definitely brings into focus the way in which your book thinks about, in some ways, you might think of abstract ideas about language, and shows how they're incorporated into uh, relationships of political power and the carving out of of territory. Uh, so I'd encourage readers who are listeners who are interested in being readers and um, digging in a little bit more to pick up the book. It's I should note it is uh, open access, um, so you can go to the Cambridge University Press website and download a, a PDF um, without any any cost. And then if you want to have a hard copy of the book, you can you can buy that online. So. Um, we'll put up links, of course, to that. So uh, let's conclude then um, by s- just telling us what are you working on now as this book is has been completed and is out? Um, I've just finished an edited volume that is more sort of aimed at those who are interested in language and postcolonialism, etc. It's titled um, Nations, Languages, Nations and Multilingualism, Questioning the Herderian Ideal. Um, Johann Gottfried Herder, Herder sort of is known most for arguing that one nation has one language and how that works for multilingual postcolonial nations like India or South Africa or um, China, for that matter, in or um, Singapore um, is what we are trying to sort of um, understand. How does that work? Um, so that'll be out with Rutledge sometime early next year. Um, and for now, I'm working on two book projects. Um, one that is trying to understand, uh, trying to kind of push forward this Adivasi question um, by doing a kind of intellectual history of um, sacrifice and property in post-colonial India. Um, and the other book that I'm working on now is uh, about them uh, pushing forward this regional identity question that this book picks up on um, by looking at how memories of maritime travel are deployed in colonial pre-colonial, colonial, post-colonial Orissa to kind of various political and cultural ends. Great. Well, I look forward to to seeing all of those uh, books in in press in the future. That's a lot on your plate there. Uh, so we'll maybe get a chance to talk to you about some of that in the future. Let's That'd see. Um, and in the meantime, thank you for your time and for the conversation. I've learned quite a lot by reading the book and speaking with you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. 